Okay, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Thank you for the uh, very persistent, perseverant types who stayed through this uh, whole conference. It's been a great day uh, of conversations. Uh, and I know we're the last panel, which means there's a bunch of challenges for us. One is the, even though there's still coffee out there and you should help yourselves, the coffee is kind of wearing off. Uh, the other challenge is a lot of the other panels, just because they were great speakers, have touched on a lot of issues that frankly, I think you're gonna hear us touch on today. So what I've encouraged uh, this particular panel to do is really focus on what this panel is about, which is uh, about the future, really ensuring we're thinking about missile defense into the future. So we're gonna focus on this tomorrow uh, piece here. And I've encouraged everyone to really push the envelope to get us thinking about this. And I encourage you in the audience as well uh, to do that, to push us to really think about, and when I say the future, I think we really need to be thinking you know, 10, 20 years out, not uh, the next couple of years uh, as we go forward. I think we've had a lot of good discussions uh, in that area. So that's what we're gonna try and do here. Uh, as near as I can tell from listening to all the other uh, panels, everyone is supposed to start off by saying they're not an expert. Uh, so I'll start off by saying I'm not an expert in missile defense. Uh, my last <coughs> job in the Pentagon was DASD for strategy and force development. Uh, so my expertise lies mostly in the tomorrow uh, piece and really thinking about how to develop the right force structure and the right capabilities uh, for the future. So I'll try and bring that uh, to this discussion. But fortunately for you all, these four people are experts. They're not just experts, they're the right experts to have uh, on this uh, particular discussion, and I'll introduce them uh, as we go along. I just wanna set up a few points that at least uh, are important for me to think about when I think about making sure we have uh, effective missile defense uh, for the uh, future, uh, and then I'll uh, allow the panel to provide their comments as well, and then hopefully we can get into a bit of a discussion uh, here to end the day. So to me, and particularly in my job when I was in the Pentagon thinking about the future, uh, I'm gonna use a couple of words you've heard a lot of times, but I think they're just really important to emphasize as we start to think uh, outwards. Uh, the future is not an easily predictable uh, manifestation. There's a lot of complexity. You heard a lot of it today already. The present is pretty uh, complex. It's extremely dynamic. And as you think about the requirements for missile defense going into the future, that complexity and dynamism really plays a strong role in creating uncertainty for how to plan a future uh, for missile defense. Obviously, it needs to be technically capable, but in order to deal with that dynamism <coughs> and potential for change, innovation is gonna be quite critical. The ability to innovate is gonna be quite critical, but adaptability, and you've heard some of that today, although I'll argue in more near-term sense, adaptability will be critical as well, because it doesn't matter how innovative we are, if we see this change and we can't adapt missile defense sufficiently, uh, we're not actually gonna be dealing with the change uh, effectively. We've seen the change, the context changing a lot already. I think every single panel uh, has said, uh, frankly, even since the last BMDR, the context has changed, the context continues to change. It's uh, more players that we have to be concerned about. It's more types of missile defense that we have to be thinking about. It's more potential uses uh, of missile defense, everything from uh, concerns about strategic nuclear use uh, to A2AD type threats to uh, 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 near-range uh, types of threats in uh, regions around the world uh, to cruise missiles. And somebody previously was talking about low and slow, definitely a challenge, uh, but low and fast is a bigger uh, challenge uh, by far. So there are a lot of different uh, areas now that we need to think about, and all of them fall under the general rubric, uh, at least, uh, of missile defense. 
mostly when we talk about future missile defense and uh, innovation in particular in missile defense, you hear a lot about the tech piece, uh, particularly the shiny objects, particularly what I would call the pointy end of the sphere. So railgun, kind of poster child for innovation in missile defense, uh, these days gets a lot of press. Directed energy, in and out of press, and lately I'd say in press, and a lot of uh, interest there uh, as well. But obviously I think it's important, and in a crowd like this I think it's well known, but I think to others sometimes forgotten, to think about the totality of missile defense, right? So the sensors, uh, the guidance, the ability for the systems to communicate uh, with each other, to network. We've talked a lot about the importance of networking here. Let's not forget about how difficult that may be. Uh, in the future, given the kinds of cyber threats and other types of uh, threats we have uh, going forward. And then the interoperability challenge we've, all, we've also talked about so far, especially if we're going to do this in partnership uh, with others. And then, again, probably not surprising to this audience, but others forget, it's a system within a number of other systems, thinking very hard uh, about uh, the space systems that both support and can be a part of missile defense, uh, and as, as I mentioned before, uh, cyber. So we really need to think about a couple of aspects. I've mentioned them already. I'm just going to uh, raise a few points on them. In terms of capability, uh, technical capability, as I said, not just the kill piece, but overall systems. Cost effectiveness, right? So we are beyond the days uh, of throwing money. Uh, well, I think we are beyond the days uh, of throwing money at the problem and expecting that uh, the solution is equal to the amount of money we spend on it. Uh, more importantly, we don't have the money uh, to throw after this uh, endlessly. So obviously, cost effectiveness has to be part uh, and considered uh, as part of this capability. Uh, and then reliability, uh, or I almost think of it as usability of the system down the road. So some of that's technical. Uh, which will have to do with technical reliability of the system. But I'll add in, we have to think about the pol political military context these will be in. So if these are network systems between allies and partners, how sure are we that we're going to be able to rely on that entire network uh, in different contexts and different scenarios? Are there critical nodes within that network that if we don't have, uh, we end up having uh, real vulnerabilities or problems with missile defense? So those are worth considering as well. Adaptability, we've talked about, uh, and there again, technical adaptability, there's been a lot of discussion there. But adaptability of uses, we've talked about many different types of missile defense. Are there systems that can help us uh, protect against more of those types? And you've heard a lot of discussion already about mobile and deployable uh, missile defenses. So let me just uh, wrap up. Those to me, again, are all the things I think about when I start thinking about uh, effective missile defenses for the future. I'll wrap up with just two other thoughts that I think are really important. Uh, here at the council, because a lot of our senior leadership is fond of saying this, uh, vision without resourcing is a mirage or a hallucination. So as we talk about all of these cool things we think are important for missile defense in the future, making sure we think about what the implications for resourcing uh, are, particularly over time, uh, so that we can have a practical pragmatic way forward uh, for missile defense, even given that array of challenges that I uh, laid out uh, before. And then the last uh, point is, again, this dynamism and adaptability point, really thinking hard about that. And I really want to emphasize, when I think of that, I'm not just thinking about adaptability of a system or a, or a tool or a product, per se. But our adaptability writ large in terms of research and development, acquisition, fielding and use of these systems and really thinking hard about that so that as we see changes, we can actually make the types of changes uh, to our acquisition process, for example, that we think are necessary to respond to the challenges uh, we see forward. 
So enough from me. Uh, now to the actual experts. Uh, first, we're going to uh, hear from uh, Pat O'Reilly, who is uh, fortunately for us a non-resident senior fellow here uh, with the Scowcroft Center. It's my great pleasure to have the opportunity to work with uh, Pat from time to time, and of course, uh, former director of the Missile Defense Agency. Pat. Thank you. Uh, I believe the effectiveness of our missile defenses in the near-term future is adequate to deter current missile threats by introducing an uncertainty into an adversary's ability to weaken our retaliatory response. And today's missile defenses are adequate to protect critical assets against a limited attack. However, I believe the effectiveness of missile defenses in the long-term future is unlikely. Uh, this is primarily due to the growing threat of the saturation missile attacks based on the increasing inventory and accuracy of missile arsenals and the threat of terrorists obtaining missiles who cannot be traditionally deterred. What cannot be argued is the very large growing cost of our network of missile defenses and the consistent trend of gro the growing missile threat. From a physics point of view, we continue to improve our missile defenses and the aerospace engineering and manufacturing achievements are very impressive. But even a theoretically perfect kinetic missile defense system cannot protect the city against the threat of a saturation missile attack or being held hostage by an extremist group with claims that they have many mobile systems. Therefore, if you cannot deter or preempt a missile attack, then you must be able to near simultaneously destroy many dozens if not hundreds, of missiles in flight in the future. Thus, our only option is to develop and deploy directed energy weapons when they are ready in the future. Key to the successful development of a directed energy systems is the strategy which we should adopt. First, we must not oversell the near-term uh, directed energy weapon capability. Our near-term capability is only effective against soft targets to counter the missile defense enabling sensors and the guidance systems and other sophisticated, uh, for other sophisticated missile systems. Uh, second, we need to cultivate and retain a cadre of scientists and engineers with unique competencies in the specialty area. And third, we need to set expectations, plan, and manage the development of directed energy systems in the periods of generations, not years. I've watched a generation of directed energy weapons development over the past two decades. And the progress has been steady and in some cases remarkable. Uh, much of the technical achievement that has come, from, has come from the commercial and academic sectors. Ultra dense power storage and power condi conditioning from the renewable energy industry, uh, nano dimension solid state physics, and precision manufacturing have contributed to us having the capability to deliver compact and lightweight directed energy systems with very high beam quality and greater than 100 kilowatts of power today. Equally important, uh, UAVs can now loft these compact directed energy systems to shoot above the Earth's atmosphere, over most of the atmosphere, rather than trying to actively compensate for atmospheric beam propagation for missile defense. Finally, years of lethality testing have redefined what is a soft target and reveals extensive mission kill capability of sophisticated military systems. In fact, it is, there's a great advantage to uh, causing a system to malfunction, a missile, rather than trying to destroy and deal with the debris 
whether it's on orbit in space or re-entering in the atmosphere. I recommend we start with a broad application of directed energy technology to disrupt military capabilities today and sustain a steady state or rate of technical progress towards directed energy systems capable of disrupting missile attacks in the future. Now there are policy issues with directed energy systems such as how to implement deterrence rather than arms escalation for which traditional approaches to transparency do not reveal the power, magazine size, or the lethality. Likewise, the inherent dual-use nature of directed energy technologies makes the observation of an adversary's capability and the ability to control those technologies much more difficult with remote intelligence gathering or technology control regimes. We should therefore be addressing these policy issues before we find ourselves surprised by the emergence of our own or other countries' directed energy systems. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Next, we've got uh, Rebecca Grant. Rebecca is uh, president of IRIS Independent Research, a public policy uh, research organization here in DC. Rebecca? Great, thank you. Well, Cheryl uh, uh, O'Reilly really is an expert in missile defense. Um, but when I looked at the question that you posed us today, what do we need to do to be sure we have effective missile defense in the sort of near and medium term and long term future? I thought about directed energy, uh, about other exotic technologies, and I want to touch on those. But I think the thing that I would most like to see looking towards the future is for all of the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, to fully integrate missile defense both at the low end and at the high end as part of their mission spectrum. And let me tell you a story to explain why I think we need to see a major change in the way we approach this military problem. Um, my father served in World War II on an aircraft carrier, one of the fast carriers. He left as a young um, graduate from the Naval Academy, went right out to sea for two years, was in all the big battles in the Pacific. And most people don't know that in that time frame, um, video and camera film was used a lot to evaluate operations. And on his aircraft carrier, which was CV-10, the second Yorktown, one of the things that they paid the most attention to whenever they had a moment every night was looking at the camera film of their flak curtain. Now, this consisted of all the 50 calibers and whatnot around the ship that would put up this flak curtain when they came under attack, particularly from kamikazes or other types of threats. In that case, this was one ship with a crew of average sailors doing their best, but they had already fully integrated defense against these incoming projectiles into their concept of ops. It's something they did day in, day out as they did their attack operations and ran their deck cycles and precipitated in those large battles. But it was something that was always part of their mission. And that's what I'd like to see for our services today to be much more sure about how missile defense is part of their mission. We have for a long time because MDA has taken us so far technically and we've seen such tremendous progress particularly in sea-based missile defense and many other things. But we are a little bit at a point where our services say we have some technologies, we have some platforms, we're beginning to see the threat, but we are not at a place where we have really exercised and pushed forward some of these technologies. We talk about things like hit to kill, we talked about other technologies, the use of truck-mounted uh, directed energy lasers as being tested by the Army. Some tremendous tests done by naval surface combatants of the USS Ponce but last fall. We see this technology starting to emerge. What we need to see is it fully integrated into the CONOPS. Uh, and why is this important? 
Because I think to gain success in this mission area, we are going to have to concentrate, as I'm sure other speakers have mentioned, not only on some of the great strides we've made in the ascent and the terminal phases, but we need to get back to the early intercept and to attack operations. And in this, I'm reminded of a long ago technical solution called airborne laser, which in a way had the concept about right. It called for uh, a persistent presence and the ability to target a wide variety of threats early on with a magazine that wasn't easily depleted. And we're looking for that type of capability again. Not that technical solution, because we want to go with something very different. When we talk directed energy today, of course, we're talking solid state and fiber lasers and the ability to put this on a number of different platforms. But this is what we need. We need something fully integrated into the service conops that provides a persistent presence that is very effective in early intercept and attack operations and can use the latest technologies. And in this, I heartily uh, agree with what we've already heard and you've probably heard throughout the day about the need to concentrate on things like railgun kinetic projectile and the various forms of directed energy. And then just to, to add to that story, one more thing. That carrier back in World War II that put up its flat curtain continued its operations even while under attack. We need to make sure that our work in advanced technologies for missile defense also complements the ability to continue to execute military operations in that saturated environment. Thanks for letting me make those comments. Eager for your questions later. Thank you, Rebecca. Next up, we have uh, Michael Gilmore, Director of Operational Test and Evaluation at DOD. So what I'm going to observe has to do with the lessons that I think everyone should have learned by what's happened with missile defense testing, particularly with ground-based missile defense testing and the results we've had over the last five years. And those lessons learned are applicable to the far future as far as I'm concerned. And they go like this. If you want it bad, you'll get it bad. If you don't do the upfront systems engineering and you don't do live testing, you won't have any idea of whether your system will actually work, particularly in a complex environment like the one that Rebecca just described, where you're trying to engage in multiple other missions. And by the way, the bad guys are trying to kill you. And they don't care what assumptions you've made about what they should do. They will do everything they can to make your life as difficult as it can be and to kill you. And what we have learned as we've tested is, again, if you don't do the upfront systems engineering, you're doomed. If you rely on modeling and simulation alone, which is often based on specifications, it assumes specifications are met. And by the way, specifications are often written ambiguously, and so it isn't always exactly clear how to implement those specifications in a specification-based model. In any event, the failures we've seen over the last several GMD flight tests could never have been pre uh, predicted by modeling and simulation. Afterwards, after it was realized what occurred and why the failure, you know, what the possible mechanisms were for the failure, you can go back, you can do hardware in the loop testing that then verifies that your hypothesis about the failure is correct, but that was not done a priori, and oftentimes isn't with very complex systems, not surprisingly. Um, DT alone, hardly any of which was done on ground-based missile defense before it was deployed, in fact, the kill vehicle wasn't even flight tested. The actual flight, the kill vehicle that was deployed wasn't actually even flight tested before we declared an operational capability. DT alone is not sufficient. 
And we've learned that again and again, uh, or at least we should have, even though many people, including senior people, like to try and deny these lessons and deny these facts. I guess it's the quintessential American search for the free lunch, which I have found is usually disappointing. Um, we continue to find problems for the very first time when we prepare for and actually conduct the tests. So the preparation and the modeling and simulation that's done in preparation is actually quite useful. Um, I can't talk in detail about the lessons that we are learning, that Admiral Searing and his team are learning as they prepare for the countermeasures non-intercept test that is going to be conducted in the not too distant future. But let me just say that a number of people have been surprised um, about just how challenging relatively simple countermeasures can be to deal with. And again, you know, when I look at the history of missile defense, what I see is a lot of thinking about the threat that ended up tailoring what the threat would do to what we thought we could do affordably. So initially, when I came into what was program analysis evaluation in May of 1990, um, we were talking about, uh, we were still talking about, although it was, you know, the talk was dying down somewhat, about defending ourselves against a large Russian attack. And everyone eventually came to understand that that was not going to be affordable and probably not technically feasible. So then we had global protection against limited strikes, where we imagined a limited strike or a rogue submarine commander or so forth. So we imagined that as a threat. Um, and we found that GPALS wasn't going to be affordable. Um, so then when it came to ground-based missile defense and the requirements, they were written in such a way that um, you know, a kill vehicle, that didn't have certain protections and had limited capability to deal with the threat, that matched our ideas about the threat. Um, well, I hope we're sending memoranda to the people who are actually building the threats to try and make sure that they're consistent with our ideas about them. Um, and yes, I'm being a little bit sarcastic there. Um, so I don't think we should fool ourselves about the threat. Um, we should design these systems based on an assumption that the people we're interested in countering aren't stupid. Um, and then we should test these systems under the conditions that they would actually be used to the extent that we can create those conditions. And when, for example, it comes to ground-based missile defense, we're never going to be able to test under absolutely realistic conditions. Uh, you know, there's the problem with the, you know, the, the uh, uh, the Russian flight zone and everything else. Uh, and so we're never going to test under absolutely realistic conditions. But when we did do the longest time of flight test of a kill vehicle that we had done up to that point, the first one with the CE-2 kill vehicle, that was when we discovered unambiguous problems with the, uh, with the design. And by the way, the other thing we shouldn't do is rationalize away interesting test results because we had some interesting test results on previous flights that actually pointed to the failure mode that we rationalized away, which was a mistake. But that's something that all human beings are very good at, including senior people in the Department of Defense. And that's something else that we should stop doing. So the point I'm trying to make here is that whatever we pursue in the future, and by the way, when it comes to directed energy and its promise, the promise is there. But what I've observed is, at least with regard to directed energy and missile defense, or for that matter, directed energy used in defense period, is that practical usage always seems to be about a decade away, the same way that practical use of nuclear fusion, on which I used to work long ago, always seems to be about a decade away at any given point. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue those kinds of systems, 
and it's not my decision, but I would argue against trying to recreate a program like the Airborne Laser, which, by the way, did have a very limited magazine, was a marvel of engineering. It was a marvel of engineering. But in preparing for the test, we discovered just how brittle it was and how hard it was to make work reliably and that, oh, by the way, it had to stand in too close anyway and probably would be destroyed. Um, and by the way, all those things were known a priori, yet we spent several billion on it, and it now rests in the boneyard. So as we pursue these technologies in the future, I'm not saying don't take risks and don't pursue these innovative ideas. By all means, do that. But also, don't kid yourself about how hard it's going to be. And I would caution against great leaps forward to spend more billions on, you know, on systems that we, bill, uh, that we bill as potential operational when they never will be, because all that will do is further damage the credibility of the community. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, and finally, we've got uh, Vice Admiral Joe Dyer, uh, who is now Chief Strategy Officer at National Spectrum Consortium, but is the former commanding officer uh, at NAVAIR. Joe? Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to be here today with these distinguished folks. Um, <clears throat> let me tell you a story uh, and then provide a little context and maybe some topics that we can talk more about later, if I may. The story goes back to the buildup uh, for the attacks in Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. I have a close friend who is a, was then a serving Israeli general officer who called up shortly after 9-11 uh, uh, and expressed his condolences but gave some advice. And his advice was, don't overreact because, and I remember the quote to this day, if you do, it will cost you thousands of lives and trillions of dollars. That was good advice. It was also, Patrick, my conversion from being ambivalent on missile defense into looking into a future where you could see that it was gonna be more and more important. Because my friend pointed out that our 250 years of relying upon an island nation, essentially an island nation, had changed dramatically and forever. So let's, as, as strategy has been such a large part of the day, let's begin to blend strategy and technology a bit. Uh, if we look into the next and future administrations, what will be our national perspective? Uh, Rebecca, more in your field than mine, but an interesting question. Will, will we be the policeman for the world? Will we return to uh, uh, be isolationist as we have in some periods? Uh, or will we expect capitalism to blossom and trade to sweep away all these problems? I don't know, but I pose the question of does our technology and do our programs marry to each of these strategies in one size fits all, or must we look at different capabilities to marry with different future strategies? Closer to home, uh, missile defense, I think, is this wonderful mix of strategy and technology, of programmatics 
and geopolitics and of rhetoric and reality. Uh, and I, I would, uh, someone make note of this please, I'm about to agree with uh, my good friends from the Department of Defense here in the OT business. Uh, I think the urgency of politics and especially geopolitics does not make a good bedfellow with good systems engineering. Uh, one rushes to make a point uh, and the other is more methodical, including the test phase. So if we look near term again, I think missile defense has an ops research problem. Patrick, you alluded to this. Uh, it, it's one of inventory, it's one of positioning, it's one of area coverage, uh, and it's one uh, that has had perhaps in our technical community too much focus on detection and targeting and not enough on a fully integrated uh, capability and system across all the services. I have a friend, uh, California, who wrote a wonderful book uh, called Across the Chasm, uh, Jeffrey Moore, if some of you know him. Jeff talks about Horizon 1, those things that we're producing today. Horizon 2, those things that we're going to produce in kind of the five to eight year horizon. And then Horizon 3, which is the home, I think, realistically still, of high energy weapons, of hypersonics, uh, we have a rich Horizon 1 and a rich Horizon 3, but a pretty damn skinny Horizon 2. Uh, I'm very impressed with what the 2A variant of SM3 is going to bring to the calculus, and I salute those of you that slipped it in there and to look at its wider geographic coverage. But we really are pretty skinny in Horizon 2. I don't believe this, but I'll make the point. Some people view high energy weapon systems like the Brazilian economy. And that is that it has tremendous promise, but there's risk that it always will have. So important, I think, to look all the way across the horizons, to look both left and right of launch. And thank you for again for being here today. Comments, Joe. Thanks very much. So before we go to the audience, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions just to see if I can pull on a, a few threads, and then we'll see uh, what everybody else thinks about uh, how to get a, how to think about effective missile defense in the future. So let me start with uh, a point that Michael made, which is uh, very important. I think we all agree with, uh, and the importance for having uh, actual. Uh, operational testing that uh, provides you a sense of reliability with systems before you go forward. So we talk a lot, or at least I talk a lot, and we certainly have uh, today, about innovation and adaptation. But of course, the best innovation and even the most adaptable systems or processes will be completely negated by failure of systems and failure of uh, capabilities. So we need to find that right balance. But can we do it in a timely enough manner? So if the rate of change around us is increasing, can we have that kind of 
certainty is perhaps too strong a word, but assurances uh, in that kind of, uh, in a relatively quick turn world. And how do we balance, and Joe, you raised this as, as well, the kind of imperatives of uh, both geopolitics uh, and sometimes near term emerging threats, uh, and the fact that it takes time for us, or at least it has taken time for us, uh, to go through the processes that we normally use uh, to do this kind of testing and evaluation. Michael? You have to use judgment. Um, but again, if you think that you can just um, bolt things together and that they'll work when they're complex systems, you know, like for example, uh, an exoatmospheric kill vehicle, um, our experience has been that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. Um, and for example, uh, General Riley, when you were running, when you cleaned up Thad, Right? You I had do. a similar problem that you had to deal with. Um, the initial interceptors were, didn't have a very good design at all. The upfront systems engineering wasn't done. And there, were, um, there was failure after failure after failure. And it looked like the program was going to die. And you went back to square one and used systems that good system, rigorous systems engineering, basically redesigned the interceptor. And then we had a series of uh, test successes. So you have to use judgment about how much testing is enough. Obviously, you don't want to test forever and never deploy anything. Uh, you know, and I don't mean to set up a straw man. We wouldn't want to do anything close to that. And we never do. We never do. Um, but this idea that um, we can just you know, basically bolt these very complex systems together and have them work right out of the box has been proven wrong time and time again. And it doesn't do anybody any good to have something out there that isn't going to work. It just doesn't. Right. So you have to exercise good judgment. And you have to give, you have to set priorities. And you have to make hard decisions. And those decisions are going to get harder and harder in a budget-constrained environment. But if, for example, having an effective ground-based missile defense system is a priority, which everyone seems to think it is, people in the Congress and people in the administration, probably in whatever future administration arrives, they'll feel the same way, then you have to be willing to provide the resources and the talented people to get that job done. Um, and, and not kid yourself about steps that you, shouldn't, that you just can't skip, no matter what the threat is doing. Again, if the threat's adapting and you hurry up and put a system out there that doesn't work, what have you achieved? Mm -hmm. Exactly. On the other hand, and I'm not saying anything profound, I know that. On the other hand, if you wait forever and test forever and the threat's moving on, that's a route to failure and, uh, and losing the war. So you have to exercise good judgment. Um, and the pressures that I see now in a budget-constrained environment I think are going to lead to bad decisions. Because as some studies that have been done recently by people at IDA indicate, actually we tend to take even greater risks, not surprisingly, in budget constrained environments, and then end up with much greater regrets. Mm -hmm. So exercise good judgment and have smart people involved, not a profound observation. Pat, do you have thoughts on that, having had a, a lot of experience trying to manage these things? I'm wondering, so I, I think it makes a lot of sense that you have to find that right balance. You have to ex uh, exercise best practices, uh, and you have to use judgment. But are there things in the process? Uh, is it just resourcing the right parts rather than just resourcing kind of the, the pointy end of the spear, really making sure we're resourcing all of this uh, supporting, these supporting efforts as well? Is there something procedural or structural we can do to improve our ability to do this, or is, is this kind of a, a rule of physics of sort that just says you need to do this and then just make a best, your best call on when you've done enough of it? Well, I, I think, uh, as, as Mike alluded to, I, I did have, I was involved uh, 
at a low level in the initial setup of the original FAD. That's a very good example. And then I was the program manager for the program on its second uh, reincarnation. And uh, for the record, as we did all the systems engineering, and I believe the right things on the second round, we would often look over from the THAD program at the GMD program wondering, how did they do that without taking the steps we took? Just, just for the record. <laughs> and, back, and, then, and then I inherited the program when it was time to launch. And Mike's yeah. like, Where, where's your systems engineering? But um, th on, on a serious note, I, I can get to very specific examples. Uh, and, and the greatest advantage to have uh, to, to build a missile defense system, I actually had with that. I had a highly qualified team that, you know, it, it is not just a euphemism. Uh, you learn from failure. And so the engineering team knew what they did wrong the first time or had an opportunity to do it. Uh, the, the decisions my superiors gave me the support that is probably not the, uh, in fact, I, I would say it's not the norm. It's definitely not. And uh, I can remember a discussion we were trying to decide as we were putting this program together how many kill vehicles we needed. And I remember the discussion was somewhere around, uh, people looked at it and said, we need 12 kill vehicles to build this program to do the design engineering, systems engineering, and testing. And so I got with the engineers out, out at Lockheed and other places that were working on it, and we, and we said, we came up with the probability of failure, how, many, how much testing we're going to need. And so we came back and said, no, we need 17 kill vehicles, not 12. We need 17 because four of them are going to fail. And we need time to redesign those kill vehicles and correct those problems in the beginning. So not only do we not need 12, we need 17, but we also need an extra uh, 16 months of development. And we want to design that into the program. And I can tell you more than once I had to play the card in the Pentagon where I was told we don't have the time and we don't have the money. And I said, that's fine. You know, FAD failed before and it's going to, do you want it to fail again? And those words carried the day. So I had the advantage of a failed of a program with a lot of documented failures. I think it was seven tests in a row. And uh, I used that to my advantage because of the budget battles. So it's not just throwing resources. You have to have an educated engineering team, including especially systems engineering. And uh, you have to have the, uh, the, the ability to stand up and get the support that I did. Uh, because there was a lot of estimates out there showing that this program, that program should have been completed uh, at least 18 to 24 months sooner than I had planned as I had to present the program schedule. And uh, it should have came in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars less than what I had proposed uh, working with the industry team. And a lot of that was the testing in assuming failure, and if you do have a failure, where's your resources to correct that up front? So uh, I think that is, as we have said, you know, in a budget-constrained environment, you take more risks and so forth. Uh, the timing was right for the atmosphere to set that program up. Unfortunately, I still have not found, and I've been looking for 25 years, a program that skipped those steps and uh, actually was successful. And uh, that you, you pay, you either pay up front or later, and I know it sounds mundane. 
And the last thing I'll say is when we originally did the, uh, I was the program manager for the design and early development of the PAC-3, uh, we relied heavily on models and sims until we found a one-digit error in one of the entry data points. And when we tried to first time assemble the, the missile together, uh, the, the flex cards didn't flex like they were supposed to. And we were looking at a missile with broken pieces all over the floor, I remember in Dallas. And that was, and the program manager had 40 years experience and he turned to me and he said, I told you we needed to go, we needed to build mock-ups and we needed to work in craftsmanship. And, and he was emphasizing craftsmanship and models and sims can't do craftsmanship. So it, to, to sum up, I 100% agree with Mike. In some cases, I was uh, fortunate enough to be with a team and I was supported by my superiors and we were successful. And in other cases, I, I was the firsthand uh, uh, person that experienced uh, the difficulties and the failures that, that, you know, mother nature has shown over and over again. You, you just can't shoot and cheat it. And uh, to test GMD, very monumental program. Wouldn't, can't, can't be done, nor you have to have a different aperture to look at that. I mean, by one point, building the target, you're building an ICBM. <laughs> so uh, a lot of people said, it's just a target. No, it's an ICBM. So uh, you just can't, uh, it's very difficult to appreciate the, the magnitude of the engineering and all the other difficulties in taking on a mission like that. So thanks. One more question before we throw it uh, over to the audience. Joe, you, I thought made a, a great point uh, basically saying, if I may paraphrase, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about missile defense for the sake of missile defense. It's what missile defense is for. And you put it in great strategic terms, thinking about, well, it depends what America's role in the world is, and then what role missile defense would play in that. And you related it, as I'd like to, back to a point Rebecca made earlier, which is, and to the extent missile defense is about protecting and enabling our military activities in many cases, uh, how do we think about that more holistically, rather than just, again, the part about shooting down uh, other missiles? Um, and so I'm not sure if you meant this, Rebecca, but I'm, I'm going to mention a couple of things that were mentioned earlier today, and you can tell me if that's about right, or maybe uh, there are some other things you'd like to add to it. So we're talking, and most of the discussion today is focused a lot on active missile defense, again, how to take out uh, incoming missiles. Uh, just the previous panel started to at least touch on some passive missile defense uh, issues, hardening, uh, dispersion. Uh, there are certainly other CONOPs and other types of activities that we could undertake that would allow us to protect forces and to continue to operate even when there are missile threats, especially when there are missile threats that uh, may be very, very difficult to counter uh, otherwise. Uh, but none of those tend to get either the attention and certainly not the resourcing uh, required to do so. We've been talking about hardening now for decades uh, in some regions and as near as I can tell made relatively little progress uh, in those areas. So not that those are magic bullet solutions that doesn't work so well for passive defenses, but uh, not that those are, 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 are uh, magical solutions either. But I wonder what you all think about other areas we should be thinking about uh, beyond the more active pieces where we do have some interesting, certainly long-term technological uh, prospects out there. But back to your point, Rebecca, about really thinking uh, holistically about this and making it part of 
from end-to-end -end part of operations as we think about it. Exactly, and I'm sure Joe will have some comments on that too. But you know, the thing that strikes me is most uh, young people who go and join the service, with probably just a few exceptions, but not many of them go into the Air Force and say, I, I want to defend against missiles, you know, <laughs> or into the Army and say, I want to be an air defender, or you know, there's, it's a small group. And it's, it's something that I think for the services as well, um, in terms of their budget priorities, it's not something that they've had to have front and center, and yet, as we look at what you heard today about operating in these environments, it's becoming a condition of something we have to do. I think the cost calculus plays in as well. There are uh, many scholarly tomes on what you should pay to harden and what you shouldn't pay to harden and what, how big an aircraft shelter is too big to pay for, where those dollars are best spent. Turns out some are really well spent on things like um, rapid runway repair, okay? There's some great areas to spend money. So there's some questions there as well, but I think it really is something that we need to, um, and I'm talking here more about the forward aspects of this, our allied aspects, less uh, about the defense of the homeland per mm -hmm. se, but we need to have our best uh, young military thinkers on this problem as well so that they can make those choices, both in terms of strategy, in terms of their operational priorities, so I wanna, you know, have one more rapid runway repair team, or do I want to have something else? Simply the problems that you see often in war games of, did you bring in the extra you know, parts for the THAAD battery? Did you have, did you have some extra things prepositioned? Or because you, know, you may not want to fly all that in in a bunch of C-17s as the attack is going on. Just all these issues that come out. We need to just start to find a path through as to what's really, really essential um, in the holistic view. And then, of course, to do that with the uh, technology as well, but I'm sure we'll get back to directed energy again for a minute. But first, Joe, on to Daniel's points here. So, well, maybe a little bit indirect, but let me define a continuum for you. On one end, you have something equivalent to Mahan's uh, War at Sea and a thorough understanding of what works and doesn't work in an evolving environment. On the other end of the continuum, uh, there's a chess game with a clock where the moves are dictated in quick and rapid succession, uh, where technology is accelerated to make geopolitical blocking moves. So I'll, I'll ask you, where are we in missile defense on this continuum between chess and a solid history of deep thinking and understanding? I think we're on the chess game side of this, and I think the difficulty of employing good systems engineering is a byproduct of this deep military thinking that is yet to be done. Let me just pull one more thread on this because there's a specific angle that I'm at least curious what, what you all think about. So there are places, and, and this goes back to rethinking the missile defense problem from a broader operational perspective, at least when it comes to military operations, but now even going beyond just how you can defend against missiles active and passive to how you op choose to operate and the 
the uh, level of risk uh, that you're taking. So uh, just hypothetically speaking, there are certainly areas of the world where we have planned to operate using, I will say, short-range tactical air uh, for a very long time. It's very dependent on bases. And because we've generally tended to have safe uh, positions in those areas, we have uh, exercised economies of scale and put lots of things in, in very concentrated form. When you add a missile threat to that, suddenly that becomes a very difficult way to operate. Our current normal response to that is, well, find a way to protect it so we can keep doing that. Uh, at some point, especially because of the points that General O'Reilly raised, it becomes impractical, if not uh, at least from a cost perspective, if not from an actual operational perspective, to keep protecting that capability to keep doing things the way we wanted to do things. And we have to do things differently. General O'Reilly, are we there already? Are we there really soon? Do we have to really rethink how we're choosing to operate around the world? Or do we have some time and will directed energy or rail guns or something else save us down the road? Uh, to be honest, I, I think it depends on the situation. There are situations where I, th I think we are very, very vulnerable today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I worry that they will surprise people. And uh, I have had arguments with, not arguments, but impassioned discussions with commanders around the world on their war games, where we look at the inventory that the intelligence tells us the threats have out there, and I'm looking at the raid sizes that are being used during an exercise. And the problem is uh, it, it became apparent, not apparent, but I, I was very concerned in some of those areas that uh, the exercise couldn't move on any further if the threat you know, used 40% of their inventory all at once. Mm -hmm. There would be no further game for a while. So uh, there are areas definitely in the world and situations where I think we have, like I said, an adequate defense against uh, certain uh, critical assets we can protect. And an airfield is obviously a big critical asset to give us power projection. Uh, but there are other areas where we are there today where I think it would be disingenuous for me to say, you know, you can just go to the open press and read inventory numbers. And uh, it's, it's a lot less uh, uh, sophisticated for everybody to do a time on target launch. Countries have launched 20, 30 missiles at a time. I'm not sure if the number was 30, but I know definitely a couple that have launched uh, 20 at a time, just to show the point that yes, we can put 20 in the air. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, you, you, kinetic systems have the difficulties I was referring to. Okay. So I, I think there, we are there in some scenarios, which obviously the commanders are not going to plan on failure. So they have to rely on other uh, avenues of, of, uh, of other alternatives in which to, to ensure we can succeed in a, in a mil uh, missile defense scenario. Mm -hmm. But we do have to employ that in certain areas. I don't think that's a surprise. Right. Well, I would make the point that I think that's the concern that General Odierno and CNO Greenard expressed. I think so. Is it not? I think so. Now, there are, many other, there are other reasons that they wrote that letter uh, to the secretary, that memo to the secretary, but it seems to me that's exactly their concern. Uh, I think it would be useful to have a debate about what we think, a nice, rigorous, straightforward debate about what we really think missile defenses are going, should be doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would influence the resources we're willing to allocate to them, as well, by the way, as how we might design them and what kind of reliability and performance we really should expect from exactly. them or not. Right. Um, if uh, we're expecting them to provide very high confidence defense of populations, 
That's not going to be trivial to achieve, and that would imply certain things about resources in the design of the system. Um, if we have other purposes in mind for them that aren't that stressing, then that could imply things about resources and, uh, and how we would actually design the systems and test them. Um, and I don't think we've had that debate. And I think General Odierno and, and Admiral Greenert basically are asking for that kind of debate. I think that's right. Rebecca, what John? if I may just throw in yeah. here, I think, you know, so we know some facts that are really different in the, in the policy aspects of this discussion. Like you pointed out, we're dealing with salvo attacks. You know, that's pretty clear now. Um, and we, we are still a little bit in the posture that you're talking about of how do we sit and take it, okay? Uh, and I think we probably need to move on from that. What, whether it's dispersion and, and so-called passive measures or is there a way to deter some of this? Is there a way to participate in attack ops and lessen it? So we need to start moving into those other uh, branches and sequels, as perhaps General Rodiano would say. Mm -hmm. Because the facts are, you know, it was a long time as we waited and heard, well, maybe this country will have this longer range of missile by this year. And you know, we're past all those little dates. <laughs> and it is time, you're so right, to decide what do we want it to do. All right, let's uh, open it up to the floor. We have a question right up here first, and then a few in the back. I would like to start with two comments, and then with a question. First comment on, uh, uh, Rebecca, your point about uh, uh, <clears throat> that the services need to think integrated way. Uh, from a NATO perspective, I think we are already there. Mm -hmm. For us in, in NATO, when I was DCOM, Ballistic missile defense was not only combined and joined, it was comprehensive when you look at the left side of launch to the very far right side of launch. And we did some exercises that included civil disaster response authorities. For instance, the direct link at UDIM between the NATO shirt early warning <clears throat> presentation and the direct link into German civil disaster response capabilities. So it shows uh, a bit how, how NATO approaches it. The second uh, comment is on uh, indications and warnings. That is the most critical area from my point of view. Uh, well, from my experience, we need to get better, better in that area. We are far away or far <clears throat> apart from what is really required in sharing information to get proper indications and warnings, because indications and warnings drive the posture level system, drive the readiness. If you, <clears throat> even in the future, Pat, uh, your systems need some preparation time. They are not persistently in the air, the UAVs with uh, directed energy capabilities. They need to be launched. And for, to launch them, you need to have indications and warnings. And to give you an example how bad it was, there was an exercise in Iran in two days, they launched 48 ballistic missiles. And it was announced in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, and I read it the day before the exercise. And then I called my A2. What about information? Zero. Zero. OK. Final point, Michael, uh, concerning um, approach to engineering. Uh, Good friend of mine, Uzi Rubin, probably you know him, Israeli. He is the father of uh, Iron Dome and other systems in Israel. And uh, I asked, from discussion with him, I had the impression that the Israeli approach to engineering is a bit different. 
because uh, he presented the Arrow as being 100% successful in all the test launches. He presented it that way. Uh, the Iron Dome is functioning very well. Uh, the failure that uh, caused the fatality during the Gaza war was because one guy in command and control did a, took a wrong decision, not because the system failed. So is there a different approach in the Israeli approach to engineering? I don't know the details of what they did. I do know what our experience has been. You're right that NATO has a wealth of experience in dealing with that as a very serious problem and a, a lot we can learn from that. And I think on the whole, encouraging, not easy, but encouraging that it can be done. Thank you for pointing that out. Thanks for those comments, General. So we have a couple of other questions. Ask you to please identify yourself and your affiliation. Uh, if you could, let's go over on the side and we'll work our way in. Hi, uh, Scott Massioni with Inside Defense. Uh, this is for Mr. Gilmore. Uh, Hask has put in a provision in their NDAA that requires uh, the dot to kind of look and find efficiencies that would get rid of cost overruns and schedule overruns. I was wondering if you had a comment on that, and I know you kind of already spoke about this earlier, but also how do you find that kind of sweet spot in between doing too much testing and actually, um, you know, saving money or, or keeping costs at, at a good place? Thank you. Well, with regard to the Hask provision, um, the department has actually taken a position against that um, as being unneeded, as demonstrated by the recent GAO report, which demonstrates, you know, which came to the conclusion um, that the operational testing that we've done uh, doesn't drive cost in significant cost increases and schedule increases into programs, and that in fact, what does are problems that arise in these complex systems some of which we unfortunately find for the first time when we do operational testing, that the program managers and the acquisition executives themselves decide need to be fixed and take extra time and resources to allocate to fixing. So that's my comment on that one. With regard to um, you know, the right balance, again, you have to exercise good judgment. And actually, I think the GAO report demonstrated that we do that. Um, and also, by the way, um, this is probably a, a little known fact, um, we, do, we develop, working with the uh, program managers and the, and the services, operational test plans that I have to approve. And when we actually execute the test, and we do keep in mind, obviously, what test assets we have. We can't create new test assets overnight. We're not going to wait to do the tests and, and avoid deploying a very useful capability just because we don't have all the test assets we want. So we always have to accept compromises and sometimes significant compromises in those test plans. But oh, by the way, even though we all sign up to these test plans, I'm not aware of an instance in which we didn't get less and oftentimes significantly less in terms of the actual testing that was conducted because of real-world real problems that are encountered when we try to do the tests than everybody had signed up to. Um, and you don't hear my office or anyone else decrying all that because, again, these are very complex systems. Testing them isn't easy to do. And even though you have a plan, reality intrudes and almost always intrudes in a way that means that you can't execute everything in the plan that you would like. Um, 
And so again, you have to exercise good judgment. Um, you don't want to test forever. And by the way, most of these operational tests play out over weeks, sometimes over months. Um, so again, if you look at virtually every program, including missile defense um, that we conduct, the testing, at least the operational testing, certainly doesn't drive the schedule of the program. I think there's another question right here. Yes. Hi, Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. I'm not a weapons expert, but I have a question. I know that with the intelligence community, they realize there's 17 agencies, and when it comes to cybersecurity and certain cyber defense, they have to kind of whittle it down to like five agencies that can actually have hands-on with certain situations. And I'm questioned with the missile defense. You were talking about the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. It's like for a while there, everybody was trying to employ their own hackers. And then when you look at the codes and everything, it could we could have friendly fire incidents. And Iran servers in Columbus, Ohio. So it became very evident that we needed to kind of rein in and have more oversight. Now, what you're talking about with the oversight with the ballistic missiles, which I'm learning about a lot today, um, when you're talking about that situation and to prevent cost overruns, like remember the Army uniforms that were $5 billion, it became $8 billion. There was a post-mortem done with that. What are you doing today to prevent any economic errors, but also errors in technology? What are the prevention plans that you have set in place, and is there consolidations with the various services? Thank you. Well, you know, I mean, it's a good question, and you're right to point out how do we keep the oversight of all this, both in the operations and in terms of the budgeting. And MDA, having consolidated a lot of the testing and resources, has, I think, done a great job in kind of bringing us all forward in, in a way that is very easy to have the oversight, and, and Mr. Gilmore, who oversees the testing and all that as well. Operationally, of course, it goes under the, the very tightly controlled military command chain, so I think we are in pretty good shape there. But I think your question is quite accurate to say, you know, how do we make sure that we're spending our dollars correctly? And I think that's why a lot of us have said we really want to be sure what it is we're trying to achieve as we invest in this, because it costs money to develop technology, absolutely. Although I think there's an interesting, it's interesting in the way you asked your question that actually poses a challenge to us. So you correctly point out that there are disparate intel agencies still operating, that uh, cyber is still something that's kind of learning and growing as, it, as we go. And those are all critical components of missile defense. Uh, and see, so even though I think otherwise what you described, in general, I'll, I'll give it over to you, kind of the reason uh, for being for the missile defense agency, the fact that even the missile defense agency has to then figure out how to integrate all these other pieces, uh, I think, at least to me, is, is quite a challenge. So again, in this conference, my one worry is we focused very much on the narrow missile defense part. That's good. That's important. That's what this conference is about. But even if we found some kind of exquisite solution there or just a really promising way forward, if we don't work on these other parts as well, they could be critical vulnerabilities in our ability to actually do execute missile defense going forward. Do you want to say anything on, on that, General Roth? Just that it's, it's inherent, uh, unless you're dealing with very small localized areas mm -hmm. of protection. Most of the missions, the missile defense missions, are, are broad areas, large areas. Uh, as the threat ranges get longer and longer and more unpredictable with mobile missiles and so forth. So you, you really, uh, it is a, a very fragile system if you're relying on one service. So inherent in missile defense, and this was recognized decades ago, you have to have an integrated uh, structure and uh, the, what I enjoyed when I was a director of missile defense, uh, very strong support 
from uh, all of the services, and not only on the acquisition side, but usually at the, at the uh, vice chief level. And uh, uh, Secretary Carter, for example, would, would run, and I assume it's still there today. I, I've been retired a couple of years, but uh, when he was the uh, uh, acquisition logistics and technology uh, uh, undersecretary, uh, it would probably be on the order of one, once every 50 days, maybe around there, 45, 50 days, we would literally have all the senior leadership. I enjoyed a great amount of support and interaction. Mike would sit at, at that table. And uh, all the integrated aspects of missile defense systems uh, would be made in that room. And uh, all of the input, and there were, there were dis dissenters and, and people for different decisions, but uh, it emphasized at the top, when you, you develop an integrated capability like that, you needed the uh, enduring uh, interaction of senior leaders and consistency. And there was very little substitution in those meetings, I remember. And those were, those were just as critical as the technical achievements, as the senior leadership at the top of all the services getting together. And we would have um, State Department, uh, Frank Rose, uh, uh, Ellen Tauscher, others would be in there. And uh, uh, policy was, was uh, definitely represented in there at the senior levels. So uh, we enjoyed, and, and under Secretary Carter at the time, we, we enjoyed, or I did, a tremendous amount of rigorous, interactive decision-making right there at the table. And uh, I thought that was one of the keys to success. And without that, I can't imagine trying to get a decision made uh, because just everything in inherent missile mission or inherent military mission, mission, like missile defense, how you could do that without uh, engaging. And sometimes NATO was you know, represented in there and so forth. So you, that, that decision structure is as important as the systems engineering, which is also important in all the other aspects. But that's another key aspect you have to have in these integrated missions. I think we had one more question. Let's go to the middle here. A couple more questions. Thank you. Uh, Wayne Meeks. I'm an independent consultant. Um, my question concerns how we regard missile defense uh, system um, my impression is for a, a function as critical as population centers, protecting population centers, you'd normally regard that as a strategic function. And yet, also my impression, we, we deal with missile defense as though it's a tactical system, uh, doesn't have the level of surety, doesn't have the level of... Uh, quality enforcement that we would normally impose on other strategic systems. It almost seems as though we are adverse to calling it a strategic system, even though we'd like it to behave like a strategic system. Uh, would someone be willing to either correct me or elaborate on that? Thank you. I'll take a shot at it. Um, I think the cost of testing, which um, Patrick, you you spoke of quite eloquently, I thought, uh, has driven a strategic nature, at least in terms of cost and probability of kill in the design into the system. 
Uh, I contrast it with AMRAM, a, a pure tactical system. Uh, where, and oh by the way, I'd love to see the analysis, the analysis, the trade between a lower probability of, K, of kill and multiple missiles at lower cost with greater inventory and hence greater geographic spread. I'd love to see that analysis in this vein of tactical and strategic. Um, it certainly is both, but the fact that you've got to build an ICBM to test it, I think must drive it to the tactical side. Patrick? Well, I would go back to uh, General Cartwright's comment this morning. There's a lot of strategic geopolitical ramifications from a tactical situation in missile defense. So uh, the confidence in, in, a, in a government and so forth be able to uh, protect its population, this goes way beyond tactical considerations of just having an asset that was destroyed by missile defense. It's the confidence level that uh, you know the government can can accomplish what it it needs to uh, to uh, be a legitimately recognized government of its population. So there are so many geopolitical aspects in in the consequences of what may in other mission sets. I'm not sure which ones what would be seen as tactical. That you you I can't see how you cannot treat it as a strategic uh, mission. And um, if your reference is to uh, the quality control and things we put into the contracts and so forth, uh, we had a term that uh, was used, and I'm, I'm sure it still is in parlance, the uh, 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 space qualified. So it uh, wasn't tactical, it was space qualified. All the components, all the, the cost of contracts and things that go in, and the, the, uh, there's a, uh, whether it's informal or not, you can see a contract that doesn't have the rigor in the uh, quality control that, that a space-qualified system or a man-rated system would have. And uh, missile defense was treated that way, not in terms of whether or not it was a tactical system or strategic. It was thinking about the consequences if these systems failed and the very nature of them. And so they automatically were, I've always seen, considered a strategic system, no matter what the actual uh, protection was. I saw three hands up. I'm going to ask you to very quickly, one, two, and three. I'm going to stress our mic runners a little bit. I'm going to ask you to very quickly please ask your questions, and then I'm going to let the panel uh, pick and choose and try and answer as best possible in the general. I think you had a, oh, I'm sorry. Do, if you wanted to, could we just, let, very quickly, let the general jump in, and then we will go to those last three questions. When I was asked a similar question at Ramstein as a DCOM, I said, uh, when ballistic missiles are flying and you need to defend, it's too late to answer strategic questions. Then you are in a tactical fight. The strategic questions, the political questions, the ramification, as you said, Patrick, need to be addressed before the fight goes on. So first to here, then we'll go to the back of the room, please. All the way in the back, yes, please. Hi, I'm Lexi Van Buskirk. I'm an intern with the Hudson Institute. Um, you've all been discussing some issues which I think are pretty pertinent to the future of ballistic missile defense, such as um, investing in R&D, pushing for new technologies, um, uh, making sure that we're integrating BMD into the day-to-day -day for our military forces, um, and perhaps most importantly, redefining the US global role um, and, and making sure we have a clear definition of what ballistic missile defense needs to look like and accomplish for the future. Um, we also have heard throughout the day that we're starting to look now at, at acting more on a bilateral and a multilateral level um, 
in, in ballistic missile defense operations um, and in creating those architectures. How can the U.S. reconcile those sort of two um, ideas, those two competing concepts without risking overstretch? Back of the room, please. Yes, Chris Anderson, AWPS. It's a media company. Um, so my question is kind of nuts and bolts. Um, uh, you're talking a lot about the uh, design, uh, build, and then operation pipeline for these missiles. Um, now, as the uh, cyber commands begin to uh, become much more robust and stand up, is there a thought to trying to integrate some of the work that they're doing directly within each of those phases as in within the uh, missile defense building, design building, and operational components so that you try to get a little more security in, into the design itself and into the building, uh, not only on the cyber side, but perhaps also on signals side too. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And then we have one more question here. And the mic is coming very quickly. There we go. It's not a short question, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start, maybe I, so I'm going to uh, urge us to start with the, the second question first because it's a, it's a major concern of mine. The cyber aspect, uh, it interlinks uh, many different comp parts of not just our own missile defense systems, but certainly uh, if we choose to uh, uh, collaborate more with allies uh, and partners uh, in order to create networked missile defense uh, systems, to what extent uh, are those uh, considered parts of the reliability and testing that we already do as part of thinking about missile defense as opposed to something we assume one of the cyber commands is going to do uh, at some point later? They, they are part of operational testing of the system. Got it. So from developmental testing of the system. And um, actually, we began working with uh, General Riley when he was there, um, and he was a champion of this kind of testing, and Admiral Searing continues to be a champion of cybersecurity testing of the system. Great. And I can't go into the details of how we do that and what we've learned, other than to say we have learned, and, um, um, and actions are being taken as a result of what we've learned, and we're going to continue to do that kind of testing. Um, and, you know, we're learning lessons uh, with regard to the missile defense networks that are, uh, uh, you know, have a lot of similarities to the lessons we've learned uh, when we have uh, done cybersecurity testing of other weapon systems and other networks. And mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Good. Any other thoughts on the cyber aspects of missile defense? So the other question was really thinking about our role in the world and how we're trying to reach out and work with others and the question of overstretch. Uh, if I may say... Uh, and General Cartwright uh, addressed this this morning also, but uh, missile defense is inherently multilateral. Uh, if you look at the regions around the world that we have to operate in, uh, I think he had the comment, it was very uh, insightful that uh, if you had an ideal design of where you would put your missile defense assets, uh, unfortunately, almost in every case, there's either land isn't there or the land that's there isn't controlled, and there are, there are compromises. There's reasons you can't uh, that make it. Uh, I don't know of a case where a country can just by itself have an inherent, uh, you know, a, a very uh, robust missile defense. So by its nature, you need assistance from your your neighbors and uh, in the region and, and in some cases beyond. So it's uh, I think one reason missile defense has had a very uh, good uh, relationship with the 
uh, State Department and others is because of the fact that it's inherently multilateral uh, from the get-go. I, I do not know of a bilateral case where we would be as robust as we would be without. I often make the comment that it's a very simple way to look at it, and I've given this talk around the world before to many uh, senior leaders. Uh, if you are trying to, one of the hardest ways to detect the missile coming at you that you have to shoot is one that's coming directly at you. Because if it's coming directly at you, you're looking at, you're looking down the barrel of it and you see a, a circle. This is very simplistic. But if you're your neighbor off to the side and you're looking, you see the side of a missile, which is, has a larger radar cross-section. So uh, that's not an exact, you know, people get into tumbling and all these things. But it, it, it does get people's attention when they think about it. And they said, yes, my neighbor may be able to protect me and, and contribute more than my own system can to this. And, and that's a fact. And so that's why I think that it's been a very inclusive type um, of um, military capability over the decades as it's developed. It's inherently multilateral. So let me just say thank you not only for sticking with us through the day, but for keeping us a little bit over time with some great questions, including a long question which we didn't get to, but hopefully <laughs> we'll get a chance to at least chat uh, a little bit afterwards. Uh, please, those of you who are still here, please thank the uh, interns and event staff who helped make everything happen here uh, today and help keep this meeting going from early this morning uh, all the way through till now. Many of you have had emails from Aparajita to make sure that you are able uh, to get here to this meeting. Uh, and of course, Ian shepherded us through uh, the entire session uh, or based in large part on his long-standing interest and expertise in this area. Uh, and of course, uh, as I said, the, expert, the panel of actual experts uh, on missile defense, it was my real pleasure to be able to sit up here uh, with them and have this discussion about the future. We certainly have identified a lot of issues. I think there's still a lot of uh, long questions and short questions to be asked uh, and answered. Uh, but one of the things I certainly took from uh, this uh, entire day session and certainly from this uh, particular panel is we have some great people who are very focused on this right now uh, and some great prospects uh, going forward. So thank you all for staying with us. Thank you all uh, as well. It's been a great conference.